Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Daniel Ryder, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thank you. Good to be on the show. Where are you calling from today? From Sydney. You're in your bedroom? <laughs> yes, I'm in, I'm in yeah. my bedroom well, at home well, in Sydney. Great curtains. <laughs> Thank you. This is an interesting chat, and I guess everyone on this call is a stormwater geek, let's face it. Uh, we love stormwater management, and the reason we're probably here on today is to talk about the work that you, Daniel, yourself, and your colleagues have been doing in terms of making real significant change in an area that Jeremy and myself have been banging on about for years. But look, before we get into your wonderful activities at Blacktown City Council, and we should, as an introduction, we should say, look, Daniel's a water sensitive urban design compliance officer at Blacktown City Council. But I know you're a massive fan of the podcast. Daniel, is that right? I've listened to what, all 130 whatever in the past oh, two months. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh my Lord. I've just binged it. <laughs> <laughs> so I've heard your, both of your voices quite a bit for the past few months. Really? Oh, well, I feel, yeah. I feel a little bit, you know, I'm blushing. <laughs> Jeremy, I'm, I'm going all rosy cheeks. <laughs> Any sign of uh, someone giving him a compliment, he just <laughs> It doesn't happen often, honestly. It really doesn't. But that's fantastic. But I actually wasn't going to quiz you about your Ocean Protect podcast <laughs> listening history, which is wonderful, by the way. As I'm sure you know, as an avid listener, you know we love getting a, a backstory on our guests. So give us Daniel Ryder, which is a side note, it's a very cool name. Thank you. Give us the backstory. How did this all begin? So I guess, yeah, in high school, I was always kind of interested in science and in the environment and was always kind of like the top science class, I guess, throughout high school, which was, I guess, good. Of course it's good. And then absolutely kind of in- it's good. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Science rules. <laughs> so then in year 10, we kind of did a bit of, I guess, biology, physics, chemistry, environmental science, and kind of realized physics and chemistry was not the type of science I was into, but it was more kind of the biology and environmental science. So for year 11 and 12, chose biology, geography, environmental earth science. And I guess for the environmental science subject, I had my first kind of major field trip, which was down to the North Island of New Zealand. Oh, yeah, it's okay. North Island's okay. South Island's okay. I get to South Island later. <laughs> okay, good, 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 good. But yeah, so it was just like a bunch of the students went down and just looked at a bunch of volcano craters, the trees and all sorts of things. So that was really cool. I guess also throughout high school, I was into art and did art from year seven to year 12. In high school, so I did a lot of environmentally themed artworks. I was kind of interested in installations and sculptures, 
one of the first kind of major environmental artworks I did was in year 10, which was these little toy soldiers parachuting on chip packets around the school. So I just installed them around the school. And then in year 11, I kind of expanded upon that and made, instead of toy soldiers, it was kind of babies about 40 centimeters tall made out of glad wrap. And so they were hollow and they were on parachutes, which were garbage bags. And again, it's kind of making that comment about people are dropping rubbish everywhere around the school, but in the environment. Then in year 12, you have a whole year where you spend on just one artwork. And so for that, again, I expanded off those glad wrap tape babies that I made and they were about kid size so maybe about 1.2 meters tall which were glad wrap figures and the artwork was called do no evil but the no was crossed out and the three figures were doing the see no evil hear no evil speak no evil thing so covering their eyes covering the mouth and covering their ears and so the whole thing was about like how we're doing evil to the environment and we're trying to ignore it and so that was kind of the main message of that instead of having the figures I guess just hollow they were filled with things so one of them was filled with medicine boxes commenting on it being a sick environment the middle one had bottle cap lids and so i went around to a whole bunch of cafes with little containers and were like can you please give me all your bottle cap lids from your milk so filled one with bottle cap lids and that was talking about putting kind of a cap on the issue of the environmental issues we're facing and then the final figure was filled with kind of table tennis balls and like play balls from like a kid's ball pit and so kind of like talking about playing with the environment yeah that was kind of my art experience and kind of helped give me a non-scientific way of looking at the environment which was cool so that's you the way you look at it it's, it's what's cool about it i think is people looking at what you've made and making them think you know what, why has he done this why 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 are those caps in there why the medicine it's it's really cool man really cool i was in year 12 now trying to figure out what i wanted to do with my life that doesn't change so, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, that doesn't yeah, change yeah like trying to figure out what i wanted to do after high school <laughs> was okay. more the thing so i was into art but figured i'd go down the environmental route i was contemplating marine biology for a while but I think I convinced myself that there wasn't much of a job in that space. <laughs> or art, let's face it. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or art. So both both spots not to go down. So instead I chose to go to Macquarie Uni and did a Bachelor of Environment with a major in environmental management and a major in environmental earth science. So a lot of environment. The idea with that was I'd start kind of like with a broad environmental degree and hopefully narrow down to kind of maybe something coastal or ocean related by the end. I guess, spoiler alert, that does happen. <laughs> um, yeah, so the environmental management uh, major was focused on, I guess, more indoor lectures, tutorials, that sort of thing, where we would talk about resource management. And I guess the work I'm doing now is more environmental management than science. While the environmental science major was where I got to be a lot more hands-on and, I guess, get more dirty, which included a subject where we were rolling, like, pieces of dirt into balls just to see what type of dirt it was so <laughs> university <laughs> yeah <That's fantastic>. <laughs> <laughs> i got a hd at dirt rolling today mum. <laughs> yeah so with environmental science we had to spend a lot of time outside of the classroom so we were going around campus but also traveled all the way to like northern new south wales and kind of southern new south wales also internationally to a few different countries which was cool so i guess one of the first kind of major field trips was down to South Island in New Zealand. And so the idea for the New Zealand field trip was looking at kind of natural hazards, but also glaciers, rivers, and the valleys. I get to my third year of uni, so this is 2017. 
And I decided I want to try and do a bit more ocean work or something. So what I did was I got my open water scuba diving license. So that gets me down to about 18 meters and do some of basic diving like that. And that was so I could do a four-week marine conservation expedition in Fiji. So yeah, I went there and got my advanced open water scuba diving license and my coral reef research diver license. And so the expedition was this tiny little island off the east coast off the main island of Fiji. And the idea for the expedition was to study the coral reefs. And basically, I guess something environmental scientists might be used to in uni and some work is laying out a tape measure, I don't know, say in a forest and walking along that tape measure and taking note of the trees, the plants, the animals that they see. However, I was doing that underwater. So we had one person lay out a tape measure for 50 meters. And then another person would be looking at the fish. Another person will look at the coral reef. And then the other person will look at marine invertebrates. So like sea cucumbers, sea urchins, that sort of thing. And so that was kind of what I was there for, to do the marine invertebrates. But yeah, so that was my third year of uni, actually. And then I had a fourth year. And so at the beginning of my final year, I found out about a cool opportunity that Macquarie was doing for the first time, which was to travel to Namibia which was just north of South Africa. And so that was a two-week field trip, again, a whole semester in two weeks. And so that was the first and last time that Macquarie ran that. First day as a group, we explored a national park, saw elephants walking around, giraffes, zebras, all of that. Then the rest of that week, we looked at the impact of a mine smelter on a nearby town. So we walked around with, I guess, these really fancy X-ray guns to analyze the soil and the dust to kind of figure out the contamination, so lead, arsenic, those sorts of things. So that was the first week. Then the second week was just a camping tour, so we just camped all over the place. So we explored sand dunes and plains and all sorts of things. And during that second week, we got robbed. Yeah, I was expecting that in the first week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, so that, that happened when we were in a little kind of German-looking town. I can't remember what it was called, but we were like, oh, yeah, this place is safe. Come back to our van and a bunch of students lost their passports, laptops, cameras and everything. I didn't lose anything, but I was close to the people that lost the things. They laugh about it now, but yeah, it was a bit of a... Are they still in Namibia? <laughs> no, so to get out of Namibia, it was going to take too long to get an Australian um, passport, like a new one. So I had to go to the English embassy, get an emergency English passport to get back to Australia. Wow, there you go. Well, at least you're alive. <laughs> I'm alive, they, yeah. they didn't take too much out. It's a crazy place over there. In my final semester of uni, we had to do kind of a group project and we had a list of projects to choose from and we had to put down our preferences with my first preference being to work with OSMAP, so Australian Microplastic Assessment Project. And I got that first option, which was great. And so I worked with Dr. Scott Wilson and I also had a bit of contact with uh, Dr. Michelle Blewett. With that, we get, got trained in the OSMAP methodology, learned how to do all of that. We helped analyze some of the microplastics, but we also did our own project, which we were looking at the difference between coastal and estuarine beaches in Sydney. So we chose a bunch of coastal and a bunch of estuarine and just kind of compared the two, kind of just see what the difference was and yeah, wrote up a report and did a presentation at the end on that. About halfway through that semester, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do after uni. And I was talking to Scott and a few others about whether it would be possible to do a microplastic assessment in Antarctica. You were just looking for a junket. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe, uh, 
in South Island, New Zealand, Antarctica, <laughs> and you're still not even making any money. You're still a student. Yeah, sadly, I was told if I wanted to do that, I'd have to do it as a PhD. A compromise was to do Macquarie Island, which is between Australia and Antarctica, but I ended up deciding I'd take a bit of a break from uni and maybe come back to it. And so instead, I did a six-week coastal conservation internship in Thailand after finishing uni. And basically, the main project I was doing there was using the OSMAP methodology and doing a microplastic assessment over there to help them try figure out what their pollution issue is in Thailand. Did that to a bunch of beaches over there, but I also worked with turtles, did uh, reef surveys, butterfly surveys, bird surveys, worked with mangroves, did a little bit of camera trap monitoring with pangolins. What are pangolins? So they're an endangered species that people try to catch for um like the scales on the animal they kind of roll into a ball to protect themselves well, you'll be right in there buddy <laughs> <laughs> back to rolling balls yeah wrote up a report on my findings and everything which i guess the main pollution there was styrofoam so that was kind of what i found there and then back to Australia and no more field trips. <laughs> and back to trying to get a yeah. job, I'm guessing. We've been doing this now for a while, and we we always love a good backstory. But that is a good backstory. <laughs> I feel like I've lived your uni days. Um, I feel like I was in Namibia. I feel like I was almost in Antarctica. That is a good backstory. So do we have any more of it? to make sure? All I was going to say before I get to Blacktown was a week after getting back from Thailand, I was doing bush regeneration for a few months. Oh, wow. Whereabouts? Penrith and stuff around there. You graduated university, and obviously all these trips aren't cheap. And if you're thinking about going to Antarctica, that's also a very expensive trip to make. So you're thinking, maybe I need to start making some cash and apply the skills I've developed over my various trips around the planet. And so Blacktown comes on the scene. When I was doing bush regeneration, I was just applying for all sorts of environmental jobs out there. I had no idea really what I wanted to do. I think I was interested in maybe coastal management, ocean-type work. But the reality is I live, I don't know, an hour from the beach. Like I'm living kind of just near Blacktown. So yeah, kind of Western Sydney, Northwest Sydney. And so yeah, it takes a while to get to the beach. I applied for the Blacktown City Council job as their water sensitive urban design compliance support officer. And I guess for the listeners, just water sensitive urban design is abbreviated as WSUD, which is pronounced WUSUD. So if I say WUSUD, that's what I'm talking about. And I start working with Russell Cadman in the Wilson Compliance Program at you know, Blacktown Council. And so I worked with him for a couple of months. He then left to go to another council for another job. And so I was by myself for a few months. And during that time, me and my team leader at the time, which was Christy Good, decided that we wanted to revamp the program a bit. So we're trying to set boundaries to what we were going to be doing. After a few months of being alone, Ben Penaluric comes along as the Wilson Compliance Officer. We really spent six months together just trying to figure out how to fix up this program. We tried to figure out how the program had been happening before and ways to make it work going forward. When you, when you say we want to fix up this program, what do you mean? Originally, the program was a bit more of an inspection-based program where the Woolsford compliance team would go and inspect the properties and check whether they were in good condition. However, there are potentially tens of thousands of assets in Blacktown Council in terms of Woolsford assets. And again, I guess for listeners, so that's rainwater tanks, gross pollutant traps, and I'm sure yeah, you two have talked about all yeah. the assets and stuff. 
just to give it some sort of context for listeners, because we do have an amazingly intelligent international audience. So Blacktown is in the western suburbs of Sydney. Uh, it's about half an hour without any traffic dramas of the Harbour Bridge. And it is actually one of the fastest growing areas in potentially even the fastest growing area in Australia. So a lot of people moving there, a lot of development pressure. And as part of that development, typically you have to do what uh, Daniel has referred to as water sensitive urban design to essentially help mitigate the stormwater pollution impacts that can come from urbanization, but also to uh, encourage, I guess, a more livable environment, you know, with cooling, you know, more um, alternative water supplies, you know, people need to water their gardens and flush their toilets, et cetera. So with that increased water demand, with increased sewage discharges, with increased stormwater pollution loads, there's a whole bunch of things that Blacktown City Council essentially requires the developer and ultimately the property owner to do on their site to help achieve a more water sensitive environment. As a result of that, there's all these assets, so rainwater tanks, what we call rain gardens or bioretention systems, gross pollutant traps, proprietary stormwater treatment assets, wetlands, etc., that are basically being installed throughout Blacktown City, uh, the LGA. And I think off the top of my head, like the, the numbers are staggering. I remember hearing over the next, say, I think 20 or 30 years, there's something like $300 million worth of bioretention systems alone being installed around Blacktown City Council. So a lot of very expensive infrastructure, but these assets do need to be appropriately managed. And if you don't manage them, they just won't work appropriately. I mean, yeah, the issue is people aren't maintaining their assets, but it's not necessarily that. So I'm going to cut you. From now on, we're not going to call it maintaining stormwater assets. I'm, I'm sorry. We're going to cut that out of our vocabulary. And this, this is an industry thing. When we talk about, main, oh, we've got to maintain this. I mean, people think, oh, a bit of oil and grease, you know. We are removing hazardous waste out of a stormwater quality treatment device. I think we in our industry have got to really change our rhetoric around that because Maintenance is implying that, oh, you know, like a car, if you, it'll keep going. The wheels, oh, the wheels are all right. They'll last another 5,000K. It's not really hitting on the point what we're doing. For our listeners, when Daniel says we're maintaining a device, we're removing all the pollutants that it's captured and taking that out of the system so then the system can then perform in the way it's um, designed to do without removing that contaminant waste. Therefore, when a storm event comes in, you can cause resuspension of what you've caught and essentially you can chuck it down the line. So maintenance, we've got to change that. It's, it's removal of hazardous waste. And to add to that, just not removal of waste, but making sure that the assets aren't broken and that they're working and that sort of thing as well. So we're trying to figure out a way to ensure that maintenance is happening. And yeah, so we came up with a whole new model and resources and we've worked on a system that we're in the process of trialing at the moment. But yeah, so I worked with Ben for six months and then he transitioned to a new role, which was the Wilson Inspection Officer, which was looking at public while my program looks at the private assets. And so... Ben leaves and I go breaking my leg. So I'm off work for a couple of months and come back to support Andrew Thomas. So worked with Andrew for about a year. He then left. I became the Wusset Compliance Officer and then got my support officer a couple of months ago. And that's how yeah, I've got to where I am today, which is the Wusset Compliance Officer. Yeah. And we, and we should put this as a little bit of a side note as well in terms of this is an issue, this lack of removal of hazardous waste or lack of maintenance of assets, or however language you want to use. This issue is one that all councils, all local governments in Australia and overseas are battling with. 
And it's not a zero consequence issue. When you don't remove the hazardous waste from these assets, like Jeremy referred to, they don't work. It'll get spilled downstream. There'll be basically more pollution in our waterways and oceans, which obviously no one wants. But fundamentally, it is an issue that's so widespread across our industry. But from my perspective, one of the only councils that's actually really doing something really effective in this space to actually address this issue is Blacktown City Council. So total respect to the guys at Blacktown City Council. And obviously, there's been, you know, you mentioned Ben, uh, Christy, Andrew, uh, Russell, etc. It's been a very long journey with a whole bunch of moving pieces, but at least Blacktown City Council are really innovating and driving change in this space. And from a, an Australian perspective, a lot of councils look to Blacktown City Council for leadership in this space. So I guess one of the key reasons we were keen to have Daniel on the show was this is an issue that Jeremy and me talk about till the cows come home. And we've been frustrated for many, many years that the fact of the lack of action and uh, initiative in this space. And to see Blacktown City Council leading in this regard gives me a lot of optimism to say that there's significant change happening and there's significant improvement happening in terms of better protecting our water ways and oceans. And I will say this, here's a council that is proactively getting out there and trying to stop the pollution from entering our waterways. There's no coastal area out in Blacktown. So these guys out here, it's, it's landlocked, this, this local government area. What they're doing is they're stopping the pollution from entering that little creek that turns into a bigger creek, that turns into a river that ultimately ends up in the ocean. This is not even a coastal local government area. This is a landlocked, highly urbanised area, a lot of development going on. These guys are doing the best job and they're not even sitting on the coast to make it look beautiful, which has to be highly commended. It's not like they're Cronulla or Manly and they want to keep their beach clean. They're essentially trying to keep Cronulla or Manly's beach clean for them. Yeah, I remember in my job interview for the support officer, I was asked the question, like, why did I want to work at Blackdown Council in this job? And I was talking about how at some point I'd like to do coastal conservation type of thing. But my idea was I'd start in Blackdown and make my way down the river to the ocean. But it highlights the point that the health of our waterways and oceans is fundamentally dependent on the activities in our catchments. And it doesn't matter how far up the catchment you go, whether you're dropping a, a plastic bottle in the hills two hours away from the beach or whether you're dropping it on the beach, it still ultimately invariably makes its way to our ocean and waterways. So it's actually critical to try and stop pollution at the source instead of just reliant on the sort of generic cleanup activities that I guess get a lot of media attention uh, to so far. We've seen some of the data that's come out of Blacktown City Council around how much pollution you guys stop from entering, you know, ultimately Parramatta River and Sydney Harbour. The numbers are staggering. Olympic-sized swimming pools. Crazy amounts of pollution that are stopped because of the installation and ultimately, ideally, the appropriate management of these assets. So for that, in that regard, it's, it's really commendable. It's not a zero-consequence activity that you guys are doing. Yeah, and I guess to put it in context also, in the absence of this proactive management of these assets, have you got a feel for what proportion of assets just aren't functioning very well at all? So the thing is, it kind of depends on what you determine a compliant asset to be. Without having reports submitted to me, I can't really tell how a asset is performing. And so that is why we've shifted from that inspection-based model to an, a report, an owner reporting model. There are over 10,000 assets in Blacktown, and if I was going to inspect all of them myself, that was going to that'd take decades, potentially, like to check them once, depending on how much time we could dedicate to that. So at the moment, it's kind of hard for us to tell how many are working properly. There are properties that we were working with when Russell was there and before my time there. However, yeah, I don't really have those sorts of numbers. 
But at the moment, what we're doing is we're trialing the program. And so we've chosen a number of industrial properties and reports should start coming in from next month, which is good. And from that, I will actually start having that data that I can yeah, be sharing with the industry, being like, yep, this amount I've been compliant, this amount's working, this amount of rubbish is being removed, that sort of thing. So yeah, at the moment, I don't really have the numbers and stuff to give you about how many are working, but there are a lot of assets and a lot of people aren't reporting on them, but it's not their fault because one, they might not know that they have Wusset assets on their property. Some people don't know what Wusset is. People don't know what stormwater is. They don't know what they have to do about it. They don't know they have to report to us. And so that's why I guess one of the core pillars of our program is about education and engagement, where we're trying to yeah, educate them about Wusset, educate them about stormwater, educate them on their responsibilities and requirements and explaining that it is a legal requirement for them to be removing the rubbish to make sure that they're working properly. And so there's that and then yeah, there's engagement. So there's letters, there's emails, there's phone calls, and we'll be able to do site visits and all of that because it's great having a compliance program. But if the people you're trying to make comply don't understand what they're trying to comply with or how to comply, it's not going to work. So education and engagement is really important. Yeah, look, I love education engagement, but I also love big sticks. And you just mentioned something that I always wanted to touch on. So you you said it is a legal requirement to remove the pollution out of these assets. So am I right in saying it is illegal to not remove the pollution from these assets? Yeah. So in Blacktown City Council, one of the requirements for um, development consent is to register a two legal documents on the title of the property, which is a positive covenant and a restriction on the use of land. And so these two documents basically outline what a property owner is supposed to do and not do to their WUSID system. And one of those things is that they need to be making sure that it's working properly, efficiently and effectively. And part of that is maintaining it. And so that's the tool we use to be enforcing compliance. We can be like, well, you have this legal document that says you have to maintain it, you have to report to us, all those sorts of things. Again, other councils do things differently. And I know, Brad, you've talked about things at that webinar we did earlier this year. There's EPA stuff and that sort of thing out there as well. But for Blacktown, we're just kind of focused on that positive covenant and restriction on the use of land as our tool. It's a really important point, like you mentioned this webinar. And generally, the podcasts uh, that we do, the Ocean Protect podcast, is is generally targeting, I guess, all public, you know, the general public, and and better promoting the issues around the ocean, what we can do about them. You mentioned our webinar, so Ocean Protect does do a webinar series. I think we've done about fifteen or so of them, and they're quite technical. They're targeted more stormwater professionals. And one of the key issues that we've raised and just talked about is, is it illegal to not maintain or not remove pollution out of stormwater treatment assets? And from my perspective, and I have got a legal opinion on this, it is illegal. Uh, now in New South Wales and, and most and pretty much every council in Australia, they do have development conditions imposed by council that essentially more or less say you have to look after these assets appropriately, remove the hazardous pollution, et cetera. And if you don't, that doesn't comply with council's requirements. There's also state legislation. So Blacktowns in New South Wales and under the Protection of the Environment Operations Act of 97, and I'm quoting this because this might be of interest to some legal eagles out there, but under section 116, yeah, it says, I'm going to quote it, a person must not willfully or negligently cause any substance to leak, spill or otherwise escape from a container in a manner that harms or is likely to harm the environment. And also in section 120 uh, of the same act, a person who pollutes any water is guilty of an offence and pollute waters includes 
cause or permit any waters to be polluted. The reason I bring that up, because and that legislation is fairly consistent across other states of Australia, there's an environmental duty to protect the environment, etc., but fundamentally, when we don't remove the pollution out of these assets, we are polluting our downstream waterways. And like I asked the question before about what proportion of assets do you think aren't getting the appropriate maintenance or what proportion of assets aren't having the pollution removed? Uh, and you don't know, which is which is fair. Uh, a lot of people don't know. Where studies have been done, and I've published papers on this, it's a very, very high proportion of assets that aren't getting any significant maintenance. In condition assessments that uh, councils and consultants have done of various assets, including bioretention systems, wetlands, etc., generally about half are in an okay condition or good condition and a half are not in a very good condition. And generally, it's about a third have completely failed. And when I use the term failed, it means major rectification works. There's a Institute of Public Works that have a five-level condition rating system. And basically, when I say fail which is a level five condition assessment rating, it basically means major rectification work. So about a third of all these stormwater treatment assets that have been installed need to be significantly rectified, almost replaced and started again. If there was any other infrastructure that in council ownership or in private ownership, and I'm talking footpaths, roads, bikeways, you know, libraries, stairs, lifts, if we had... I don't know, more than 5% of all assets needing major rectification works. It'd be an outcry. But for some reason, stormwater treatment assets, recognizing they perform a vital function to protect our waterways environment, somehow the industry, and I guess more widely speaking, the public have just accepted this high rate of poor asset function which essentially means a hell of a lot more pollution is entering our waterways and oceans, which from my perspective, isn't good enough. Every week, we empty our household rubbish into a rubbish bin and the council come along with their rubbish truck and they take our rubbish away and we keep filling it up every week. Now, you ask yourself, if the rubbish truck doesn't come one week, it's an outcry. Like, honestly, you're like, oh, my God, what am I going to do with all this rubbish? Like, it, it's happened before and, and continues, you know, we expect all our rubbish to be taken away. So if the ocean was a consumer relying on all these underground rubbish bins to be emptied once a week or, you know, periodically, and that it just doesn't happen, it's a massive outcry. People don't understand that there are thousands of underground rubbish bins sitting there full to the brim with pollution and nobody's taking any of that out. It's diabolical. And to be honest, it's one of the key reasons we've done this podcast is to bring attention to this issue. But we're not about doom and gloom on the show. We're also about celebrating the solutions. And again, this is why Daniel is on our show to talk about the wonderful program that actually Black Town City Council is initiating. So tell us more, Daniel, please. Fill us with hope. (laughs) (laughs) Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're in the process of trialing this program, so hopefully in the near future, other councils will be able to look at what we're doing and we'll have the resources and everything out there that councils can look at and copy and do it themselves. And hopefully other councils have compliant assets and it's not just Blacktown Council. But I guess the three pillars for this compliance program is there's the compliance one, which again has that positive covenant restriction on the use of land, but it also has, we've developed the conditions of consent to make things a bit stronger and clearer and making sure that we have the information we need to do our compliance. And we also developed a system that allows us to, I guess, manage and track compliance because there needs to be some way to track compliance on numerous hundreds and thousands of properties and assets. So that's kind of that first pillar and which is an important pillar to any compliance program. Then the next one is that education and engagement, which I talked about before. And so, yeah, we're trying to really educate the community and it's not even just the people that have Woolsit assets. We do hope to educate yeah, people who just live in residential houses and don't have any assets because as you both were saying, they're not being maintained. And that's because the community, I guess, isn't pushing enough and for that to be happening. And that's because they don't understand. Before getting this job, I had no idea what Wusset was. Like when I applied for the job, I'd never heard the word water sensitive urban design. And so when I'm talking about my job to people, sometimes I'll have to be like, oh, I deal with stormwater. And they'll be like, what's stormwater? And I'm like, rainwater runoff. And some people still get kind of confused about that because people aren't educated enough. It's not their fault for not being educated. It's the industry. We need to be educating the community more, teaching them how the water cycle works, then talking about runoff and urban development and all those sorts of things. Because yeah, like as an industry, we can continue to talk within ourselves about the issues, but until we actually start working with the community more, I don't think there's going to be enough push from the community to have these things working properly. There's a couple of factors here though. It's only the hardcore people like us. Like when it rains, people typically go, well, I'll go inside and I want to stay dry. When you get out and, and look at the urban environment in a rain event, you get to physically see water comes down, going down there, it's collected that, it's collected that, go down the drain. If you go to an outlet on a coastal area, you can actually see it puking out. But fundamentally, people don't go out in the rain. Second point, out of sight, out of mind. I mean, we've said it a million times. After a lovely rain event in Sydney, you go out and, geez, I mean, I love the smell of, of you know, it's just rain, everything feels clean, and it is clean. Because Mother Nature has just washed everything off our streets and it's gone down drains and no one no one sees it. You know, no one sees it unless you're surfing or you're out in the water out in the coastal areas. Everyone goes, Oh great, I just had a free car wash for the you know, for the whole bit of my property. So there are some fundamental factors that stop people physically seeing it and of course it's rain. People don't like getting wet. To reiterate some key educational foundations before we delve into too much of the detail. And I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir. A lot of our listeners are just stormwater gurus. But when rain falls on our hard stand areas, it washes into our gutters in our pits and basically generally into stormwater pipes. And typically that pollution, that flow is just transferred straight into our creeks and waterways without any interception at all. It doesn't go to a sewage treatment plant. It goes to our downstream environment, generally with no treatment devices at all. Now, often treatment devices are put in, maybe about 10% of all urban environments might have some sort of treatment device, a gross pollutant trap, a filter, something like that, bioretention wetland. But again, that 
pollution might be intercepted by those assets, but that still pollution doesn't just magically disappear. It needs to be physically removed. Hence, what the need for appropriate management of these assets to remove that pollution. Hence, the important need of a, of a compliance program, which is what Blacktown City Council are initiating. Again, it's not a zero consequence thing. It's not an academic discussion. Roughly about 80% of all ocean plastic is from land-based sources, and the key mechanism as to how it gets there is stormwater runoff. And also, stormwater is also the number one contributing factor to the degradation of our urban waterways. So stormwater management, that's why we're so passionate about it. It is a very, very important thing, and it's important that we do it properly. Education and incentivization, wonderful parts of the Black Tank program. That incentivization and recognition is the pillar that we're working on next. We haven't done too much work on that. Yeah, so it's great to have a compliance program that you can enforce compliance with and then having people educated on how to comply. But some people do need that kind of recognition and incentivization to do the right thing. And it's like people like being told they're doing a good thing or getting some sort of reward. And so that is something we want to try. What do the rewards look like? So how do you reward someone for basically complying with the law? We haven't really delved too much into this area yet. It is something that I want to be doing, but at the moment we're focused a bit more on the trial. But yeah, so there could be things like... Gold stars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Blacktown Council does have an environmental recognition business program or something that's looking at industrial properties, and I need to meet with them and talk about that a bit more and see if I can join that or we can work together type thing. But that is recognizing people for doing the right thing. I think you might get certificates and that sort of stuff. So I guess for businesses, there's a bit of an incentive and recognition that way. So at the moment, I can't really talk too much about it because I haven't spent too much time on it. I've got an idea. How about you just do the good old fashioned, I'm not going to get fired. <laughs> so, you know, like, hey, this year I cleaned my underground rubbish bin, so I'm not going to get a fine from Blacktown City Council. That would encourage a few people, Daniel. <laughs> but, well, that is part of the program eventually, but I guess the, the, in, in terms of enforcement. But yeah, to Daniel's point, there's a strong focus on education and incentivization currently as part of this program. But I, I'm guessing ultimately there may be an enforcement part of this program. The idea with the new model that we came up with, we give property owners a bunch of chances to submit the reports and do the right thing. If they get to a certain point and there's still not things aren't being resolved, whether that's reports not being submitted or corrective actions are still required to remove things or fix parts of assets, we will then do a compliance inspection where we will go to that site. We will look at the assets. We'll look at all the assets on the property and figure out what the issue is. We will then send them a letter being like, get this fixed by this date. And we'll also send an invoice for our time. If they don't pay that invoice or fix the issues by that date, we will then go to our legal team and be like, this is what's happened. They're not doing this. They're doing this, whatever. And then we'll kind of work with that legal team to figure out how to move forward with that property. Yeah, at some point there will be that enforcement aspect. We haven't tested that yet because we haven't got to that point yet. Yeah, with this trial, we'll see how things go and yeah, like we do want to be having some sort of incentivization to do the right thing. And I guess, yeah, not being fined is one, but the reality is people don't understand what they're doing. Like this is a new program. Like I'm sent out all these kind of welcome packages to property owners with a letter, fact sheets, a maintenance schedule being like, you have to maintain it in this standard. And a lot of people didn't know that they had assets on their property. They don't know where they are. They don't know what they have to do. You have to give them a chance before, I guess, getting too serious with fines and legal action and all of that. 
Well, can I play devil's advocate? So number one, it's a very nice program. It's very friendly. And it's also giving people the opportunity to to plead ignorance and stupidity, which I'm not actually sure if that stands up in a court of law. If I go and park my car in the main street of, of the city, and I might be like, I don't know I wasn't allowed to park there, Mr. Council Parking Inspection Officer, but I was completely oblivious to all this. The first education that I'll get will be a $200 fine on my dashboard and with probably a seven-day period to pay it by. So why the double standards? Why are we letting polluters let's be frank with that term, these individual property owners are polluting our environment. Why are we letting them do so with you know, a, lo- a very nice, you know, friendly education incentivization program? But meanwhile, the guy who might park his car illegally for five minutes or the lady who might park in just to get some groceries for a screaming baby in the back seat or something like that, why are we so harsh for that? Another scenario is if I rock up to uh, the Parramatta River with my two-ton truck full of rubbish and I just tip it and dump all that two ton of rubbish into the Parramatta River, I would expect some sort of fine from council fairly quickly. But because these assets are out of sight, they, they're probably doing something similar. If a big enough site, it, it wouldn't be un, unusual for have two tons of pollution to go from a single site. I'll give you an example. We cleaned out a, a site in Adelaide recently, a shopping centre site. We removed eight tonnes of pollution just from one clean. So it's not unusual to have a two-tonne amount of pollution dis, uh, discharged into a waterway. So again, why are the double standards? Why are we being so nice in education and incentivising with these underground assets when we have such harsh penalties in other parts of uh, council's activities? It starts with one word, mate. Money. Well, it's very easy for people to go. I mean, well, why do you think you get a parking ticket? Why do you think you get a speeding ticket? It's a way to generate revenue, and this is the point. But that's my point. Why doesn't council use this as a way of generating revenue? Because council was we're still asking the question: Is it illegal or legal to do this? That's well, why. for me, it's fundamental. It's it is illegal. I don't agree. I'd say the difference between, I guess, at the moment, between, I guess, enforcing compliance on removing rubbish from your worsted assets and parking in a spot you're not supposed to park is. That system for enforcing parking fines is established. It's been around for a long time. So people know what they're not supposed to be doing while the work we're doing, like, yeah, sure, maybe at some point in the future, we'll be able to enforce things a bit stronger. But while we're establishing this program and trialing it and all of that, I think the idea is we do want to be trying to friendly about it because people don't understand it. There is a difference between knowing you're parking in a spot that you're not supposed to park in and maintaining an asset you didn't know you had because it's underground. Like if people don't get told when they buy that property, it's a bit harder than actually moving your car into a spot. I'm going to call bullshit on it. <laughs> I was um, waiting no, no, I, I, I'm going to call bullshit on it because as Brad will attest to, owners of new sites, they're across everything. So when a consulting engineer is looking at everything and it's going, okay, well, this uh, retaining wall is going to cost you 40 grand and this is going to cost you this, as if the owner's not looking at all the costs on it and going, what's this $25,000 thing? They know what they're doing. Unless you're the richest guy who doesn't care about his building, 95% of people will know exactly what is in their building and what is not. 
So when they say, oh, we didn't know, it's to Brad's point. It's pleading ignorance. It's just going, oh, sorry. And look, we don't mean to play devil's advocate. I come back to my original point. I do celebrate and I certainly acknowledge Blacktown City Council. We're impatient souls. When we see a problem, we want to see it fixed. And when we see pollution uh, going into our oceans and waterways and we know that can be prevented, we get frustrated and get all... Sorry, sorry, sorry. Impatient? It's been... (laughs) As long as I can remember, we've been talking about this issue decades. Sorry, how patient do you want to be? <laughs> well, maybe just a little bit more patient, Jeremy. But again, I recognise, yeah, look, we're, we're, we're passionate about this. We want to see change. But for, uh, I, I still maintain that at least uh, Blacktown City Council in the western suburbs of Sydney have picked up the, the ball and gone, you know, we're going to lead the way on this. We're going to probably get criticised for it. We, we, you know, we're, we're doing something different. You know, we're damned if we do, if we're damned if we don't. The property owners aren't going to like council knocking on their door and saying, you've got to fix up your rainwater tank in your own garden or your underground device. They're not going to like that. The tree-hugging uh, ocean protectors of the world, uh, Jeremy, myself included, are going to say, we want to, we want you to issue $10,000 fines to every property tomorrow. At least Blacktown City Council is giving this a go. It's a very lengthy process. It's a lot of analysis, legal uh, uh, you know, reviews, etc. Obviously, councillors get involved and they want to get re-voted in and stuff. So it does take a lot of attention and smart thinking. You know, Jeremy and myself probably... Would, would come into Blacktown like a couple of raging bulls and want to issue, again, fines for everyone, which wouldn't win us any friends and we wouldn't get re-elected to, and probably lose our jobs fairly quickly as well. So, again, we recognise that it does take time. Um, but, look, again, it's great that Blacktown's leading the charge. It's great that Blacktown City Council is so, and yourself in particular, Daniel, is so forthcoming in sharing your experiences and your learnings and trying to encourage others to do so. So, the listeners might not know. So, Daniel has come on and as has Andrew. Andrew Thomas and, and Ben Penelope has come on our podcast, presented the various webinars, giving up their time to reach a, a mass audience. Daniel himself, I'm going to put a shout out. Daniel actually flew himself down recently from, from Sydney to Hobart to attend a stormwater symposium down in Hobart. He paid for it himself to come and share his experiences with the Tasmanian stormwater industry. And also I can advise that Daniel is also going to Adelaide and sharing his knowledge and experiences around this program with the South Australian stormwater industry as part of the South Australian Stormwater Symposium. So in that regard, I think we need to acknowledge the wonderful work that these guys have done, but also how they've done such a great job of sharing that information with others for others to actually do it themselves as well. Maybe in a more quicker fashion, maybe differently, who knows, but at least they're going, they're giving it a crack. I'm the biggest supporter of Blacktown, as, as everyone knows, 100%. But again, I call bullshit about the people not knowing that plastic's in our ocean. Like, because of social media, everyone knows plastic's been the best thing for our industry, and we haven't jumped on board with it. People could see plastic out in the ocean. Are you telling me people in Blacktown don't know that there's crap in the ocean and going to them and to explain that this is how it happens? And that brings me to my next point. Goodman, who build industrial sheds. They've been a client of ours, so they install different types of assets. Goodman would probably be one of the, the, the most environmentally conscious companies out there when it comes to stormwater runoff. They maintain the majority of their assets, and they've been doing that for as long as those assets have gone on the ground. And there's only one reason why, because when Goodman builds a facility, they retain ownership of that facility. They know the spec of their concrete. They know the spec of everything because that's their asset that they then lease out to other people. They want to take good care of their own assets. 
So therefore, when it comes to the stormwater asset, originally they probably, you know, they didn't really care about the environmental aspect, but they probably went, hey, we've spent 30 grand on this, we've got to look after it. So it's taking ownership of what's on your site and then the byproduct of that is that you've got cleaner waterways. So going back to it, Blacktown's doing a great job. One thing else that we haven't even touched on that Blacktown City Council do, which I think a lot of councils do nowadays, potentially following Blacktown's lead again, is a lot of water sensitive designs that get put in the developer in private ownership, if they if they were to be retained by the private owner, whether it be a shopping center or like a fast food center or a petrol station, Blacktown City Council require that developer to have a long-term maintenance agreement in place. Basically, a contract to say that I've signed an agreement with some sort of provider of maintenance services that asset or assets will be maintained and that pollution will be removed for a fairly long time. I think generally it's the seven to 10 years in Blacktown City Council. In some parts of Western Sydney, we see 25-year agreements being required prior to development approval. But who's auditing that? Well, currently, no one. That's, that is that is a drama. But again, as part of this water sensor design compliance program, that is being changed. Is that correct, Daniel? Well, yeah. So one of the conditions put in place is, yeah, that they need to enter into a five-year maintenance contract. And that contract is supposed to be forwarded to me. And so I'm supposed to have a copy of that. And then that gives me one of the ways that I can identify properties with or subsystems. Yeah, the reality is things can go through the development process a few different ways, and it could potentially just get missed by the person who has to send it to me. So yeah, that's one of the ways. And basically, yeah, that means, okay, I know that that property is supposed to maintain for five years. And then by the end of that five years, I should kind of be following up and checking in to see if they've got into a new one. A new thing we've also added is a maintenance agreement. So yeah, we have the maintenance contract, which is your yeah, set period and certain maintenance with a particular contractor. And then the maintenance agreement is supposed to be for the life of the development, which is supposed to be about that they will maintain it um, for the life of the development. And basically, they can sign with any maintenance contractor. But then if the contractor changes, they can send a new copy to me. So basically, as long as that's a similar or better standard than the previous one, then I'll be happy with it. If it's a lesser standard, then I'll work with them and be like, you need to fix this up, do whatever. And we should point out, it's early days in this program as well, isn't it? So it is a new initiative by Blacktown City. Can you speak to any of the sort of results or findings so far? At the moment, all we've really done is sent out a welcome package. So that's introducing myself to them, the program and their requirements and giving them some educational material. So at the moment, we haven't had anyone reporting on maintenance, removal of rubbish, inspections, any of that sort of stuff yet. But yeah, at the moment, it's just really working with the trial properties to get them established into the program, helping them set up maintenance contracts, helping them understand the maintenance requirements and helping educate them on what was it is at the moment. And and if you had much interest from other councils, you obviously presented various webinars, industry events. Are there other councils, local governments or other, other regulators taking notice of what you guys are doing? Yeah, so other councils are interested. Like when we were down in Tasmania recently, the ones from um, Hobart were interested in what I was doing, then presenting at webinars. I do get follow-up with some councils just kind of saying that they want to keep in touch or like see where things are at or ask some questions. People working at councils are following me on LinkedIn now where they're getting updates from me on what's happening because yeah, I am trying to 
post once a week about, I guess, WASD, not necessarily about the compliance program, but just a way to kind of give a bit of education to the industry, but also anyone on LinkedIn that's interested in this sort of thing. There is interest from other councils. I think at the moment, I'm also working with the Parramatta River Catchment Group. So I've attended a few stormwater committees recently, and they're starting to talk about, yeah, trying to figure out how they can establish those in their councils. And so, yeah, they're asking a lot of questions and I'm kind of helping them with figuring out what to do. So yeah, there are other councils that are interested. I think the thing though is our program isn't ready yet to be copied right now. I am in the process of trying to create a resource that will help councillors at some point. But for now, they just kind of have to, I guess, start thinking about it, start getting prepared. Because, yeah, it's going to take a bit of time for the trial to be finished and it's ready for other people. And so what I want to try, I guess, start the conversation is now what people can do while they wait for Blackdown Council to finish their trial and the resource is ready. We've been doing this for two and a half years now. It is a big process. It won't take that long for other councils because we've done the hard work and figured out what works and doesn't work. Different councils will have different processes, but it will be able to share with them a lot of lessons and experiences and things to avoid and kind of the ways to make it work. At some point, I do want to start, whether that's a webinar with Ocean Protect or at conferences and that sort of thing, just trying to start getting people educated on what they can start doing now. So figuring out how compliance or how development happens at the council, what conditions of consent they have in place, whether they're interested in forcing compliance, what is compliance, what is a compliant asset to them. So there are things that people can start doing while they're waiting for us. So interesting. And it, it's a real change in communication strategy. Like Jeremy was sort of thinking out loud before about, you know, we haven't told our story properly. You know, people don't understand stormwater. It's out of sight, out of mind. And that is, from my perspective, a failing of the industry. Um, but we got to recognize that the, the way we used to traditionally communicate was you know, basically to ourselves. Typically speaking, it'd be a conference, a two or three day conference once a year at some location with a whole bunch of other stormwater professionals. In more recent times, and I'm going to give Ocean Protect a pat on the back here because we've, we've led the charge on our podcast. Our webinars, I mentioned before, are extremely popular. It's a great way of communicating and advocating for change. And if nothing changes, nothing changes. And sometimes you just got to put yourself out there and do something different. Put yourself out there into different mediums. You know, talk to the public, not just stormwater professionals at, at boring old conferences. Putting yourselves out there and actually communicating with other stakeholders, particularly the public. The public want to know how to address the issue of plastic pollution in our oceans and more broadly, just environmental pollution. To do that, you've got to reach them where they're at, whether it's in their earbuds at home, walking the dogs, doing their shopping, cooking, whatever, or in professional webinars, etc. Because of that, uh, those activities, we are seeing a rapid change in our industry. Like last three or four years, Jeremy, and uh, Daniel as well, I think I've seen significant change in, in our space. It's been at least a lot more engagement and discussion with various stakeholders, which for me has actually resulted in at least the beginnings of fundamental changes in our industry, which I think is a real positive. Septic tanks. We all clean out septic tanks because they're full of shit. <laughs> and we go, oh, we don't want shit in there. We clean grease traps out because we're like, oh, we don't want grease in there. But for some reason, stormwater assets, which has got a wide range of nasty contaminants in it. But Brad, you used to deal with wastewater. I mean, shit, shit's easier to remove. Real easy. Stuff out of, it is. You know what's coming in, so you know what you have to do to get it out. Whereas a stormwater asset can have zinc, coppers, um, you know, plastic, nitrogen, you know, you name it. Nasty crap in there. And we're like, 
then I'll be fine once we'll it go down to the ocean. Yeah, I'm always amazed that people think, oh, yeah, you can just let that stuff roll into the waterways and, and oceans and it'll be okay. Or even more more like more like fundamentally, you're going to let it roll into a wetland or a vegetated bioretention system, whatever, and you don't need to ma- manage that pollution. You know, Some of the stuff that we pull out of our assets will kill everything, just kill plants, kill fish, kill a whole bunch of stuff. You don't want this stuff in your waterways. But again, that story needs to be told. You know, People need to see what's in our assets. Yeah. I would add to that, so yeah, kind of building on the things you're saying. The thing, though, is I don't think people are aware of that connection that stormwater going down into a stormwater drain ends up in a waterway or the ocean. They probably assume it goes to a sewage plant or something like you guys have talked about before. So I think that's one issue, and that's why Brad was saying, yeah, like we need to be telling our story because people don't see how we're connected from Blacktown to the ocean. Like they don't see that connection because there's a bit of a disconnection because People don't understand that journey from dropping a litter on the streets of Blacktown will end up in a turtle or something in the ocean because that's a distance that people can't really comprehend for a piece of rubbish. And then building on adding to something that Jeremy was saying earlier on was about how there's heaps of plastic on social media and stuff and that is starting to grow quite a bit. But the thing is people aren't, again, that disconnect from land-based and the ocean. And just because it's showing plastic that's not talking about stormwater and so that's what brad's saying about yeah telling our story so we need to be using social media doing public events to explain yeah what stormwater is and how pollution is entering from land base into waterways and then the ocean yeah so like that can be social media things like i'm trying to post stuff on linkedin now to talk about wussed which most of my network is probably stormwater industry but there are people from uni doing other jobs and they might like it and then their networks will see it and all can kind of grow from there yeah i think the industry does need to work on using social media better and working on it doing a podcast is great and you can build upon that as well and so there are things that I think need to be happening to educate the community a bit more. Dan, what happens is, look, sex sells. <laughs> sex, chocolate, and money. Those three things will always sell. What we do is not sexy. Now, if you're boy and slant and you're out in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and you've got the Discovery Channel and you've got TEDx and you've got all this attention based on the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, Sure, they're going to get a lot of attention, a lot of investment, a lot of money. And, and that's about fixing the problem. Brad and I have spoken about it, you know, the, you know, turning the tap off. But our focus as a human race is about, oh, let's fix that problem. Let's not try and stop it at source. And what you said before at the start of this podcast was maybe you'll start at Blacktown and go downstream out to a coastal job. What we need to do is we need to go upstream. We need to go from the ocean go up those little creeks and rivers and talk to every single person along the way because they're all contributing, whether you're in Blacktown, Penrith, Ride, Manly, Cronulla, everything that goes down on your local government area, everything goes down your drains and out to the creek, river and ocean. So it is up to us, but at the end of the day, we are a very small organisation. We're a very small industry. However, this small industry is having the biggest impact on our waterways and we need more attention. We need more government funding. We need help. I mean, even politicians, Daniel, Brad and I, we won't mention their names, politicians in very high senior levels to do with the environment didn't know that stormwater didn't go to a 
treatment plant. They thought it, and it all went there. So if the people at the top don't have an understanding of it, the people all the way down don't, then you, you can't really blame the average Joe for going, hey, what's going on? So it does lie with us. Yeah, but it is changing. It is improving. Jeremy and myself have yeah, talked to various politicians and, and most of them don't make the connection between ocean pollution and, and, and stormwater runoff. But I'll tell you who does. Kids. So I, I gave a uh, a talk at my nine year old niece's uh, primary school recently, and I asked them where's all the ocean pollution coming from. Ninety nine percent of them said, "Yeah, it's stormwater." They all get it. I'd say most stormwater engineers would tell me uh, something else. But again, that's changing. But does to get back to the Black Tennessee Council Wusser compliance program, it does begin with education, and it does mean that education comes in various forms. Recognizing that people often speak different languages, they listen or receive information in different environments which means essentially that message needs to be communicated through various different mechanisms, whether it's social media, pamphlets, uh, drain stenciling, you know, whatever, a, a letter in your rates, whatever. But that education does need to happen. And it's great that Blacktown City Council is again leading the charge in this regard. So in that regard, I, th- I take my hat off again to Blacktown City Council. And without mentioning names, but I will, Dr. Andrew Thomas, Ben Penaleric, Daniel Ryder, obviously, or Tony Merrilees, Mark Lieben, Christie, et cetera. And I'm sure I'm missing a whole bunch of others at Blacktown who have done a wonderful job over the years in this regard. I'm very keen to see how this program looks in, say, six or 12 months' time. So, Daniel, you've just booked yourself another spot for the Ocean Tech podcast. If people are really keen to actually get into the technical nitty-gritty of this, we will have Daniel on our on, a, on our Ocean Protect webinar at some point in the near future. If you're keen to tune in, just maybe contact Ocean Protect, but it will be uh, advertised on oceanprotect.com.au slash webinars. So look out for that. Again, thank you so much, Daniel, for all your efforts and, and, and coming on our show and, and communicating. And we should point out, Daniel, you are a bit of a stormwater re- celebrity, really. Like, I see you in all the <laughs> webinars and conferences and symposiums. And just for the listeners, how old are you? Uh, 25. That is impressive. So, well done, Daniel. Good good stuff. Very cool. I think you've got Brad shaking his boots. <laughs> Someone else is going to be more popular than me. Oh, yeah, there we go. Yeah, at the um, Tasmania Symposium, Brad was just hyping me up before my talk because he was the talk before me. And then during the break between the talks, the photographer came up to me saying that I'm the poster child of the event. I was like, <laughs> thanks, Brad. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, I'm going to have to work with that photographer. <laughs> Look, I don't, I don't mind passing oh. the mantle as long as you give it back to me very soon, soon after. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We'll, I'm we'll kidding. see. Uh, but look, thank you so much for coming on our show and sharing your knowledge and expertise. It's been wonderful talking to you. And all I can say is keep up the great work. Thank you. It's been great. Boom, boom. Shake the room, mate. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.